Hope you all are doing well. We're going to continue in our, our series this morning on, on the church, a, a summer series. Uh, and Lord willing, it will end at the end of this month. So we'll get through August and beginning in September. We will begin a new sermon series through one of the books in the New Testament. I already know which one. The elders know which one. Some others know which one. I'll tell you in a little bit. This week, we're going to continue with the question who leads the church? Last week, we answered that question by defining what elder-led congregationalism is, particularly starting with the last part, and that is the congregation. And so if you'd like to hear that, I encourage you to do so. I think that sets up the, the premise for these, next, uh, for these next messages. Back in 2015, seems like forever ago now, before we constituted as a church, a group of us would meet together, and before we would even take the Lord's Supper together, because we were, we were like, we're not a church yet, let's not take the Lord's Supper yet, we began to ask these same questions that, we were, that we've been asking ourselves and asking uh, uh, over this sermon series, and particularly one of the questions that we honed in on was teaching about elders. And the question that arose in that sermon series that we unpacked for uh, several weeks was, what are elders and who should be one? What are elders and, and who should be one? And, and this is, may seem like a very easy question, like last week, another easy question, right? But this is one of the most important questions a church can ask and answer and consider. And it is one of the most important questions that a lot of churches, many churches, have gotten wrong and continually get it wrong. We answered this question back in 2015 with elders. We have elders now. So, so why consider this question if we already have elders? Don't we, at least those who've already come in membership, you agree? in a sense, that this is what the Bible teaches. Well, the big thing, the big reasons why I would like to consider this question of elders, of what an elder is and who can be an elder, is eventually, as we grow, we will need more elders, as well as the church should always be raising up elders. My hope and my prayer for us then is that as we continue to answer this question and, and many other questions, is that when we look at the Word of God as a church, we would continually trust in the sufficiency and the veracity and truth of God's Word. The way we feel, what we already know, where we have come from and where we are going, brothers and sisters, are all in subjection to the truth of God's word. We must not let culture define who leads a church. We must not let what society feels define who is a church member. It is the scriptures that have defined these things. So we, may we be conformed to God's word this morning in all things, including as we answer the question, who leads the church, part two. Look in your Bibles now, if you would, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Hint, hint, 1 Peter will probably where we will be starting in September, but not in chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. So I, Peter, exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, 
but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, a.k.a. Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Humility, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Now we are a Baptist church. If you come to join our church, and you or you come to become a Christian, then you will be baptized. You will be immersed. We got a cattle trough tub up in the attic. We'll fill that puppy up. And if you're as tall as Keith or myself, you will fold up and we will put you in. And it will work. It has worked. We are Baptists. Can good Baptists have elders? Well... Hopefully, we can answer that question. Well, yeah, unless we're bad Baptists. We know that Presbyterian churches have elders, and some other denominations do as well. But I know from my experience, Baptist churches, especially Southern Baptist churches that I've been in most of my life, do not have elders. Let's talk some history, though. Going all the way back to the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 26, paragraphs 7 and 8. I'm not going to read them to you, but it says that the, the office of elders and pastors, the same thing, are to lead the local church. In the late 1700s, here in Georgia, prominent Baptist David Tinsley, along with Silas Mercer, Jesse Mercer's father, were both ordained as elders and even lay elders in a church. Throughout leading Baptist associations throughout history, Philadelphia, Kentucky, and Charleston, there were always elders. In the New Hampshire Confession of 1833 and 1853, which is our statement of faith, it identifies the, the local church's only scriptural offices as elders or pastors, same thing, and deacons. The Abstract of Principles, penned in 1858 by the founders of Southern Seminary, as the confessional document still used today as Southern Seminary and also at Southeastern Seminary, states the regular officers of the church are bishops or elders and deacons. And up to 1963, the Baptist Faith and Message of the Southern Baptist Convention, 1963, used the term elder in its description of the office of the church, but that changed to pastor in 1963. The first president of the, 18, of, of the SBC in 1846, W.B. Johnson, was an advocate that each elder of the church brings a particular talent to meet the needs of the church. Therefore, there should be a plurality of elders that lead the church according to the needs of the church because they bring different gifts and talents and abilities that benefit and bless the whole body. John Piper summarizes this saying, the least we can say from a historical survey of Baptist confessions is that it is false to say that eldership is unbaptist. On the contrary, the eldership is more Baptist than its absence. And its disappearance is a modern phenomenon that parallels other developments in doctrine 
that make its disappearance questionable at best. So what does that mean? That means we are one of the most Baptist churches in this area. (laughs) The plurality of elders has been replaced by a single pastor and a deacon board. And as Piper clearly states that this shift happened because of a massive change in doctrine and theology and culture that pressed into the church. And so we must ask the question, has this been a good change? I believe it was Ronald Reagan who said in the 1980 presidential election, which I was just born in 1980, so I wasn't around to hear it, but I've heard him quote it. He said, you've tried one way, How's it working out for you? Are you better off now? There are always more to the root of the problem, but there are, generally speaking, Baptist churches, are they known for being salt and light? Are our values, practically speaking as Christians, really that much different from our neighbors? Are our congregations nurtured and disciplined like our New Testament church counterparts were? Are membership roles inflated with unattending, undiscipled, and unregenerate members? Are pastors and staff held accountable to anyone besides themselves? Could that be a reason for the alarming rate of moral failure among pastors and staff, as well as the abuse of pastors and staff? Are they burning out? I think we know the answer to these questions, unfortunately. But regardless of history, regardless of confessional documents, or even pragmatism, what works better, brothers and sisters, we have been given the templates of how the church is to be led. We have been given the word of God and what a glorious place we are in by God's mercy to be able to come to his word with open minds and open hearts to be humbled and freely receive it and have it shape us. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, as he now intentionally shifts the conversation from the church as a whole and begins to address the elders of the church. Which shows what? That there are elders leading, overseeing, shepherding the church. uh, Peter is writing to the church in Central Asia, which is now what we would call modern-day Turkey. And these churches were being persecuted. And his purpose behind writing this letter was to exhort and encourage these these Christians and these believers that were suffering under such immense persecution to remain faithful, but remain faithful in the gospel. Remain faithful in the word of God. Don't forget what you have been taught. Don't forget the atonement. Don't forget Christ. And so he dresses the church directly saying these things, but then he shifts the conversation and begins to address the elders. Now this may be small, but it is very important. The word elders here is plural. He's addressing more than one man. And so each church is to have more than one elder. Nowhere in scripture is the title elder used to describe singular leadership in the church. It's always used plural. We're going to go through a lot of texts. I'm going to prove it to you. Acts 11.30. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So this is the relief money that was gathered by other churches that were being sent to Jerusalem. And who received it and who distributed it? The elders. Acts 14, 21 through 23. 
when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that for many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. They ordained these men. In the churches that Paul planted, they came back and discipled and led them, but led them to appoint elders. Acts 15, 2, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Acts 15, 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared that God had, had done with them, all that God had done with them. Acts 15, 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. That is important. Later on in Acts 15, 23, it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with their following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia. Greetings. Acts 16, 4, they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So see in these verses here, the perceived authority is not just in the apostles, but also within the elders of the church of Jerusalem. Acts 20, verse 17, now from Miletus, and he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Acts 21, 18. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Elders were leading the churches in Ephesus, in Antioch, in Jerusalem. So not just in Jerusalem, but all around where the churches were being planted, elders were being raised up and put in place. This is why Paul tells Titus in Titus 1.5, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul tells Titus to put into order the church. And by doing so, you appoint elders. Lastly, in James 5.14, it says, If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The office of elder, when possible, is plural. So when Peter says to the elders, he's talking to a plurality of elders in each church. But why does Peter address the elders here? Well, the apostles would not always be with them. The apostles would not be there with them. So elders were given to be the spiritual leaders of the church, particularly now in the absence of of the apostles. They are to do the work of the preaching, the strengthening the disciples, and to encourage the saints who are now in these churches facing persecution and tribulation. They are to be shepherds, as he says, and overseers to the church, lovingly lead them by the word of God, not for their own gain, but often, out, uh, often at their own great sacrifice. 
The office of elder, as we see in 1 Peter chapter 5, is for the leadership of the church through the ministry of the teaching of God's word. The Bible uses three words to describe this office. We've said these before. Elder, bishop, shepherd, pastor, and overseer. These, these are all synonymous for the same office, but yet describe different roles and functions. We'll talk about that next week. 1 Peter chapter 5 describes the heart and the calling that an elder has for the body of Christ. To shepherd flock. To shepherd the flock. Humanly speaking, one of the greatest impacts on the spiritual growth and the health of the church is the kind of leadership that it is following. When the men who serve in the office of elder are biblically qualified with, and skilled and gifted to lead the church and have been called by God, the church will flourish, even during persecution and suffering and tribulation. Growing in Christ, unified in Christ, maturing and marked with holiness. This is the elder. So who do we look for to serve in such positions? The temptation is to use worldly wisdom and with the eyes of man to determine who's an elder or not. Like when David was being picked when he was so young. According to the eyes of man, several of his brothers looked a lot better and older. But according to God's word, it was David. A biblical elder is not simply an older man. Elder does not refer to the age of a man but to the maturity of the man, no matter his age. In fact, it could be a good thing for an elder board, a plurality of elders in a church, to be made up of different generations. So first, a, a biblical elder is not simply an older man. and An elder is also not simply a successful businessman. Leadership in the church fundamentally looks different than leadership in business. An elder is not one who knows what they want and knows how to get it. Nor are they someone who knows how to manage people, raise money, climb the ladder, or close a deal. The church is not a nonprofit business. We are the body of Christ. So how the church is managed, how the church is, is grown, and how the church is strengthened looks very, very different to the world. It's one of the reasons why we're so weird. An elder is not simply involved in, an involved community member. Certainly it is a good thing for church and church members to be involved in their community, being well thought of in the community. But just because someone is a, a, a politician or a city councilman or mayor or on the board of education or something else, that does not qualify them to be an elder. An elder is not simply a good old boy. If you are from a small town, then you know this dynamic. If someone is well-known, if someone is influential and affluent, then worldly wisdom says, bring them on. We need them. We need their money. We need their affluency. We need their connections to get us in the door for, for, for different things. Because we all know that that affluency has certain perks to it. Y'all know how it runs. But one of those perks is not a qualification to be an elder. And let's be honest, this is how many things are done in our communities and in our world today. But this is not to be the case in the church. Lastly, an elder is not simply well-educated or seminary trained. 
Church culture has created the idea that the only ones who are qualified to teach or lead with any biblical authority are those who have been to school or seminary. That's culture shaping the church, not the church shaped by Scripture. The elders of the church are men who are morally qualified and competent to teach the Scripture and are mature. No formal education is required, but absolutely to be biblically qualified is. Elders of the church are sometimes paid staff members, such as teaching pastors and seminary, very much is a great help, and education is a great help, but mostly the plurality of elders should be made up of lay elders, meaning elders who are not staff paid. So then, if this is what an elder is not, how do we know what an elder should be? Well, good news, the New Testament is very clear. It's very clear on the qualifications on an elder. There are essentially, I split these up essentially into six different categories of the kind of men that the church is to put into this office. The first category is desire and aspiration. We read in our passage earlier in 1 Peter, in verse 2, it says that an elder is to shepherd the flock, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. I think that that's pretty clear, of a desire and willingness to, to elder and to guide and to lead the church. Paul he makes, he goes, takes it even further in a sense, makes it clearer even more in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Yes, this is a noble task and a noble office. But what is he saying? He's saying that those who serve must aspire and desire to serve in the office of elder. The office of elder, brothers and sisters, is not a thankless job. We are appreciated. But especially for my brothers who are lay elders, they sacrifice so much time. They work hard. They sacrifice their own money, and they give of their own family time and life for the benefit of the church. To be an elder, faithful shepherding does demand and requires so much. And if you didn't have that desire or aspiration, then you could burn out. But desire and aspiration is not all. The second category is an elder is to have godly character. This is probably the most important trait an elder is to have. Because it is better to have a man with godly character and not be the best teacher or preacher in giftedness than to have a man who is massively flawed morally but is the best teacher and preacher and has the most sound theology you've ever heard. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 2 and 3 says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, quarrelsome, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Titus 1, 7 through 8, goes on to agree, For an overseer as as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. These qualities of, a, of godly character are, are very straightforward. This list is very straightforward on the kind of man who is to be an elder, to be above reproach and blameless. My brothers and sisters, lest we believe that this is moral perfection, then let me tell you that there would be no elders. But this is a man who displays 
in an exemplary, exemplary degree of Christ's likeness. Being above reproach is to be righteous and holy and respectable. To be self-controlled is, is, is going back to the display of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So an elder is one who exemplifies the fruit of the Spirit to the church and displays self-control and sober-mindedness. Self-control and sober-mindedness is one who is not ruled or a slave to sin. And that's why the list goes on. Not a drunkard, not violent, not quarrelsome, not arrogant, not quick-tempered. Not easily drawn into fights. But is settled. This man is to be gentle. Gentle is an interesting one here because we wouldn't necessarily classify that as strength and leadership. Because gentleness, however, is on this list because this is how Jesus has shepherded us. Jesus has shepherded us in gentleness. And so an elder shepherds like the good shepherd. Gently. That's why we see in 1 Peter 5, not domineering in the others, not heavy-handed, but as a peacemaker. They're not a grenade thrower. They're not divisive. They're not going to speak bad against others and malign other elders if they disagree or one of the sheep. They are also not to be greedy. All three passages agree and speak of money. Greed isn't just a problem for paid pastors, but it can be a snare to any man in a position of authority. An elder is to have godly character. The third category is an elder is to be able to teach. The overseer in 1 Peter 5 is to be able to teach, 1 Timothy 3, 2, able to teach. And Titus 1, 9 says, to hold firm to a trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. To hold firm to the word of God, to be able to give instruction and to rebuke and to correct. That is the role and why elders are to be able to teach. The central task of an elder is to teach. And in teaching, we are instructing, and we are rebuking, and we are correcting, we are building up. And to preach God's word to God's people. This is how they are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Elders oversee the church by the word of God. They guide the church by the word of God. They grow and they mature the church by the word of God. And to do this, an elder must be able to teach. They must have an understanding and sound doctrine and theology so to give instruction to those who are growing in the faith. Elders should not only have an understanding of doctrine and theology, but be advocates of the local church's distinctive doctrine. Our brothers are firmly Baptists, and they are firmly Reformed. I don't know if you catch that in our brother Kenny's prayer. He is firmly Reformed, and he is blessed by it. And he prays it because he believes it. He wants you to believe it. He wants you to be blessed by God's sovereignty. All the elders should be in agreement in these matters so that they will be unified in leadership and there would not be an opportunity for fracture between them and, and within the congregation. Such things as the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, God's sovereignty, the exclusivity of Christ, substitutionary atonement, believer's baptism, congregationalism, love for the congregation, and biblical ethics to maintain the same stance on abortion, on homosexuality, 
transgenderisms uh, and so on. Marriage, gender roles. An elder is to be able to teach. Fourth, the category, the fourth category is an elder is to be leading their family well. Politicians and leaders today want a firm line between their private and public lives. Because according to them, what does one have to do with another? I can go on there, but I'm not. But as Christians, we know that it does. And in the church, it does matter. Home life, marriage, parenting are all the proving grounds for an elder. In Titus 1.6 and in 1 Timothy 3.2 says that they are to be the husband of one wife. There's a few different interpretations of that. I, I happen to believe that the, the most literal translation of that is to be the, the one woman man. But however you may see it, at the very least, this tells us that he should be a faithful husband who honors the sacred covenant of marriage. And that they are faithful to their wife in all areas of their marriage, keeping it pure. They are to be leading their family well by being a fruitful father. Titus 1 says his children are believers and are not open to charge of debauchery or insubordination. And 1 Timothy 3.4 says he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Being able to lead and oversee effectively is a qualification of an elder. And if in the proving ground of life, in the proving ground of their home, they show themselves to be effective and fruitful, then that's meeting the qualification. But if not, how could a church, as it goes on to say, how could a church expect them to oversee and manage the household of God? I believe that both of these passages are saying that a man is to be leading their household as a godly father who shepherds his children in the gospel according to the word of God. A parent, no matter who they are, does not have the power to make their children Christians. As much as we would love it. But we do have the say. The authority and the responsibility to be packing, kindling of God's word around them in such a way that they will be ready to hear the gospel and be made alive when the Holy Spirit ignites according to God's will and if that would be his will. Lastly, not to be overlooked is that an elder is to be hospitable. This hostility is allowing others into our lives and into our homes in order to see the proving ground in action. Trust me, at my house, it is not always pretty. It's messy. It's loud. We have multiple stains on the carpet. The walls sometimes, too. And you will probably see Christina and I become exhausted limits. One evening when Anthony and Patrick were over, the boys took us, Christina and myself, to our absolute limit. And if I told you what they did, the twins, not Patrick and <laughs> Anthony, if I told you what they did, you would be very sympathetic. It's real life. And it's in real life, in, our, in hospitality, that we get to see how we communicate, how we respond, how we love, how we fail, and how we clean. <laughs> the fifth category 
put your guns away on this one, is that an elder is a man. From all the scripture that we have read this morning, this should be obvious that God has created only male and female. And men are to be the elders in the church. The pronouns in the Bible are true. They are relevant. They are right. And it's obvious that God has called men and only men to be church elders. Teaching is an authoritative act over the whole church. And as the scripture says, we'll read it in just a second in 1 Timothy, women are not to exercise authority over the men in the church. 1 Timothy 2, 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for, her, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. The prohibition here to women is not cultural. It's not just, this is how we treat women now, so let's continue to treat women in this way in the churches. It is not something that's determined by talent or giftedness. If you ever heard Elizabeth Elliot teach, she's a far greater teacher than me. But through the order of creation, from Genesis, Paul points to Adam was created before Eve, and it was Eve who was deceived first. God has given Adam headship over Eve. God has created male and female, equal in the image of God, but God has given them different yet complementary roles to be lived out in the home and in church. And therefore, we submit to God's word and as our authority, trusting that this is good for us. If not for the simple fact that in Genesis it says that, that the woman would be tempted to usurp the role of the husband. And the husband, the man, would be tempted to just let her have it. And your submission in this area is good for men as you lovingly, submittingly kick us forward and pray for us. Lastly, the last category is that an elder is to be a mature believer. Very close to the second qualification of being above reproach. But this also means that they must not be a new convert. They must not be a new convert. They must not be a new Christian. 1 Timothy 3.6 gives us this warning. He says, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Sometimes new Christians are just amazing. They are, they are such a blessing to be around. They have this great energy and zeal and passion from, for, for God's word and for the, for the gospel. And they want to be around and they ask tons of questions. They tons of questions. They drink God's word and, and theology from like a fire hydrant. They're taking in so much at a time. But we cannot make the tragic mistake of believing zeal and passion equals maturity. Brothers and sisters, I have seen this with my own eyes. So many young men who have fallen because churches have put young men who were passionate and zealous for God's word forward, honestly, because they didn't know how to handle them. And they sent them off to Bible college and Bible school thinking, hey, you should be a pastor. And it was devastating to them. It was devastating to other churches who received them as a pastor. Not to mention their families. The title elder implies maturity. The one who has been planted by streams of water of God's word for years and has grown deep roots into it. 
So here's the thing. If you are a Christian, in one way or another, each of us should be pursuing these qualities. That's appropriate to you. Not with the same goal of, of being an elder, but to be mature. Does be holy not include you being above reproach? Does it not include you being self-controlled or sober-minded or faithful in your marriage? Or to hold firm to the trustworthy word that has been taught to you? In some way or another, all Christians should read these traits and pursue those that's appropriate for you. Especially for our brothers this morning. If you are a Christian, do you, do you aspire or desire to be an elder? What's keeping you from being an elder? What sin? What struggle? What immaturity? Even if you do not aspire to be an elder, do these qualifications challenge you where you are this morning? All of us should be pursuing these qualities as men as husbands, as fathers, as single men for the good and for the building up of one another and for the church together. But to the elders and to those who will might be raised up and called to be an elder, none of these qualities stand alone. All of these qualities and these classifications must be put together because in them we see perfectly our Savior, Jesus Christ. The qualifications are there for our protection, for your protection, for the protection of the elders, and for the building up of the church, and for the man who aspires to be an elder. So looking back at 1 Peter 5, the elder shepherds the flock. They exercise oversight, is not swayed by man, not serving in self-gain, serves the church with eagerness and joy, not as a tyrant, but with humility. They are an example. They serve as under the authority of the good shepherd. And next week we're going to cover a lot of those roles and functions of the office of the elder. But what's most important is that the elder knows that they serve not their sheep, but they serve Jesus' sheep. Their authority is not their authority. It's authority derived from Jesus, the shepherd, to his shepherds exercising oversight in all matters of the church according to how Jesus would shepherd his people. Doesn't this, as we saw even last week and I think the weeks previously of asking the questions of the church, doesn't this encourage us that even the smallest and the poorest of churches that cannot go out and afford the most and afford to hire the most talented professionals to lead them. God has richly provided for his bride, gifted, qualified, spiritual men to lead his church. Mark Dever, senior pastor and elder of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C. said, probably the most single, most helpful thing to my pastoral ministry among my church has been the recognition of other elders. The service of other elders along with me has, been, has had immense benefits. A plurality of elders should aid a church by rounding out the pastor's gifts, making up for some of his defects, supplementing his judgment, and creating support in the congregation for decisions, leaving leaders less exposed to unjust criticism. Such plurality also makes leadership more rooted and permanent and allows for more mature continuity. It encourages the church to take more responsibility for the spiritual growth of its own members and helps makes the church less dependent on its employees. He goes on, our own church has enjoyed these benefits more because of God's gift to us of elders. As a man who is called and served in the pastoral ministry, who have other godly called qualified men around me over these years, 
who not only encourage me, love me, support for me, have provided for me in many ways, but they will also correct me, has been one of my greatest joys. We have certainly, over these years, we will admit that we have made mistakes. But as weird as it sounds, we have made those mistakes together. It's not all up to me, and I am not alone. I'm truly thankful for them. I'm thankful for their teaching. I'm thankful for their preaching ministry. I'm thankful by their leading. I'm thankful for their shepherding. I'm built up by their gifts. I am supplemented by their gifts when they are exercised. I am blessed by their prayers, as I'm sure as you are in all these things. Beloved church, the Lord has given us elders for our good to lead and oversee our church, his church. I pray that you would join me in praying for not only the elders that we have now, but also the elders that God will raise up over the time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now, God, as we respond that we are a blessing. God, we are so grateful for the office of elders. We see the, the richness of its provision and its plurality and in its gifts and its wisdom and different perspectives and even ages. Lord, we are quite thankful. We have been blessed as a church because of it. Lord, we pray for our men that are leading now. Continue to guide them and lead them and give them wisdom and humility. Lord, we pray for future men who would be called to be elders. God, we pray for, for them and for all of our men to pursue at least the qualifications of an elder. They may not aspire or desire, but at least pursue the qualifications of elder. And Lord, we pray for those who do aspire and those who desire. Would you protect them and guide them, guard their hearts and their minds from the temptation and sin of this, of this world and the sins of the flesh. Lord, let them be firmly rooted in the word that they would have all understanding of inside of your word and doctrine and theology and be able to teach. And God, we pray for us as a church that we would, we would be raising up elders. That we just see that the maturing of every boy and young man and, and, and young older men as the work of the ministry of building up the office of elder and deacon. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your word. We pray, God, that this time would have been, was fruitful to all of us and to the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.